Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week I will be interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Wicks, and I will, t I will tell you a little bit more about that in a second. If you're the kind of person who fast-forwards through these intros, uh, please hang on just one second, uh, because I wanted to tell you all that we are going to be offering some books um, on our social media, so on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash uh, A History of Christian Theology, and Twitter at Theology. X-I-A-N. Uh, so if you would log into those, follow us, um, and retweet or share um, the, uh, the notice about what books that we're offering, you can be entered in to win one of those books. So we're going to do one on Samantha Miller's Chris Awesome's Devil, and then we're also going to do one on Gavin Ortland's um, St. Augustine's Theology of Creation. So um, if you would please uh, like and retweet and share those, I would really appreciate it. Uh, we launched it yesterday, didn't get a whole lot of interest, so if you're hearing this, um, now's your time to possibly get one of these books. Uh, we'll have several of them on both of our sites, um, so there'll be at least four chances to win each book, depending on whether or not you're on Twitter or Facebook, um, and we're going to be doing, we'll be rolling those out little by little, and I think it's going to happen more often, so if you stay following us, uh, you'll, be, you'll be aware of when those come around. Um, so like I said, if you're the kind of person who fast forwards, I hope that you've listened to this. Um, and now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the actual podcast with Jeff, and then he'll be on shortly. I thought I would have Jeff come on to talk to us a little bit about Syriac Christianity, something that we haven't covered very much on the podcast thus far, um, and which uh, Jeff is an expert in. So um, he recently released a book with... Um, with the University of California Press called Bible and Poetry and Late Antique Mesopotamia, Ephraim's Hymns on Faith. Um, and this book is largely uh, comes out of his dissertation, um, and it is also going to serve as a springboard for some of his other work. So he focuses quite a bit on poetry um, and this tradition of Christianity in East Asia that springs up kind of uh, in the general area of where uh, Jesus uh, lived. And so it's uh, exciting to have Dr. Wicks on the podcast today. Um, so our podcast is going to cover a lot of different things. We begin by explaining just exactly what we mean when we say Syriac Christianity. Um, then we talk a little bit about why Syriac Christians tended to prefer poetry um, as their mode of expression uh, as compared to Greeks and Romans. Um, and then about halfway through the podcast, we discuss uh, the beginnings of early Christian rock music because Jeff makes the comparison between Ephraim the Syrian uh, and rock groups like DC Talk. And so we talk a little bit about uh, his background and music that he loved as a kid and, uh, and then why that's similar to what Ephraim the Syrian was doing uh, in Asia in the 4th century. Um, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, so it's stem or sort of goes back and forth between a little bit more uh, academic and at times a little bit more uh, fun where we you know talk a little about his his background as a Christian and how he found his way actually to the Orthodox Church um, so we we've got a lot of different topics here um, I also should have probably done this at the beginning but if you are still listening um, please check out our Facebook page or our Twitter um, we're gonna start doing some giveaways uh, InterVarsity Press has been kind enough to give us several different books um, and so we'll be releasing those as sort of giveaways for those who um, 
uh, engage with our social media accounts on Twitter and on Facebook. So uh, be looking out for those. One of them is Samantha Miller's book on John Chrysostom and the Devil. The other is Gavin Ortland's book on Augustine and Creation. And I expect that there'll be more of those to come as as we go along and uh, expand our relationship with other uh, publishers. So um, definitely check us out on there and um, look out for some giveaways. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jeff Wicks. Cool. Uh, so uh, welcome to A History of Christian Theology. This week I have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wicks with me. And uh, Dr. Wicks is the prof- uh, Associate Professor of Early Christianity um, and the uh, Coordinator for Graduate Studies at St. Louis University. Um, he was also my professor. Um, and so I got to know Jeff for uh, for a few uh, years here in St. Louis. Um, and he is um, a specialist in Syriac Christianity, especially the poetry of Ephraim the Syrian. Um, so he's written a, uh, I guess you've got a translations of his hymns on faith. You have a book uh, on poetry, the Bible and poetry, uh, for, um, Bible and poetry in late antique Mesopotamia. And you have another book coming out on poetry. And is that just in the ancient world more broadly? Or, you know, that's the the, the work that you're, um, that sh- should be, I guess, that you're in the middle of working on, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sort of at the beginning of it. So yeah, it's on um, hagiographical poetry. So in the Syriac world, um, uh, authors start writing poems on saints in the fourth century, and then in the fifth and sixth centuries, uh, not surprisingly, as the cult of the saints kind of explodes throughout the Mediterranean, and really takes on a, a coherent, recognizable shape. There's also an explosion of poems, specifically liturgical poems and hymns on saints. And um, that, so this, this book is on hagiogra- Syriac hagiographical poetry spanning the fourth through six centuries. Okay. And I'm just starting it. I hope to, yeah, God willing, um, I would be done with this in two or three years. Oh, okay. All right. So that's, yeah, that's sort of way in the future. Cause I was going to say, um, I looked up the, the more recent published book, the Bible and poetry. Um, and that one was 2019, I guess, yeah, with the university of California. September. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually was reading your section on ekphrasis and thinking about incorporating that, uh, cool. for my dissertation. Oh yeah. Well, actually I was gonna, we can sort of trade some materials because I actually have to write a essay on Syriac poetry for a volume on um, on homilies, late antique homilies. So I was going to was going to send that essay your way once it's done and get your feedback on it. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, well, let's go. Let's step back for just a, a second here. So Syriac um, is a phrase that may be less familiar to people who are not studying um, ancient Christianity. Um, so uh, what does that refer to very broadly? Sure. So Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic. Aramaic is a language family um, like, uh, let's say, the Romance languages. Um, And so usually when we say Aramaic, usually especially when Christians say Aramaic, what they refer to is the language that Jesus spoke, um, which was would be more kind of technically called Palestinian Aramaic. Syriac is the dialect of Aramaic that was spoken east of Antioch, um, beginning in the second and third centuries CE. Um, So it's kind of, 
its headquarters, its capital, so to speak, was a town called Edessa, which is uh-huh. um, right in the modern day world is right on the border of Turkey and Syria. And it was a okay. literary literary language that grew up um, in late antique Christianity. It was after Greek and Latin, the most prevalent Christian language. Um, and it produced a huge literary body which began to decline in um, number, in number of works written with the rise of Islam, though it still hold, held on uh, as, a, as a common enough language until the 13th century when it was really kind of almost totally replaced by Arabic. Um, okay. With the exception of a few um, fairly isolated villages where in fact it is still, still spoken today in Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. There's a, a dialect of Syriacus uh, is still spoken to this day. Yeah, so I, I think when I was doing my class on Syriac Christianity at Princeton Seminary, we got to go to um, a Syriac Orthodox church, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess they call it the Holy Corbono, mm-hmm. and they were very proud that they were still sort of celebrating the Mass, celebrating the um, the communion, the Last Supper, in the language that Jesus spoke. So there are still mm-hmm. elements of it in Aramaic, but but it's largely preserved in Syriac uh, mm-hmm. churches and Syriac-speaking communities. So it's also a, a liturgical language, is that right? That's where a lot of people are fam- more familiar with it? That's right, yeah. So Syriac today for... Um, many of the churches from the Middle East would functions similarly to the way uh, Latin functions in the Catholic Church or Greek functions in the Orthodox Church um, as uh, the primary um, language of of liturgy. And of course, it will be be translated in in America. Large chunks of the service will be in in English or in in Arabic, depending on how... um, depending on when the community has immigrated, but the, the kind of most important parts of the services, like the, um, uh, the anaphora, the words of institution, will still, will still be in, in Aramaic uh, slash Syriac. Yeah. Interesting. Well, while we're talking about the language specifically, one question that I had as I was sort of um, reviewing some of the, the history um, of the language, uh, both for this podcast and some other things that I was thinking about, mm-hmm. I just noticed how laced with poetry and song most of the sort of Syriac churches. And I, when I took uh, we had we had a book that I had to buy uh, in seminary, the earliest Christian hymn book, the Odes of Solomon, which has a lot in Aramaic and then Syriac, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to sort of the beginning of this um, uh, this form of Christianity that's that's lar- largely in Aramaic or largely in Syriac, mm-hmm. um, and in this culture, just seems to be. Um, sort of almost centered around poetry and song. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it, why is it that this form of Christianity is so steeped and so immersed in music and musicality, um, maybe in ways that, you know, we don't often think about uh, Latin or Greek in quite the same way, especially when you're doing theology in those languages, it's almost always treatises, commentaries, but very rarely um, song and hymnody. So what is it about uh, Syriac that makes it either so um, apt uh, to be um, written in poetry or the culture that supports it? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult question to answer. So before I hazard a question of why, I want to just kind of emphasize your point um, of how prevalent it is 
Um, and yeah, you mentioned the Odes of Solomon. So the Odes of Solomon are one of our earliest extant long work, works in Syriac. They actually may have been written in Greek. Uh, okay. It's one of these things where they exist early concurrently in both Greek and Syriac. Um, I think current scholarly consensus is that they were probably written in Greek and then immediately translated into Syriac. But point being, they, they survive in their longest form in Syriac and they are poetry. Another early Syriac work, um, which is called the Acts of Thomas, not to be confused with the Gospel of Thomas, um, <laughs> uh, has large chunks that are that are uh, hymnic. Um, but the the stat that I think kind of sort of seals it for people is, um, or at least people that study early Christianity, if you can kind of form in your mind the way, say, Latin and Greek uh, builds a theological culture in the fourth and fifth centuries and who the who the major authors are like augustine uh in latin gregory nazianzen in greek john chrysostom so on and so forth uh in syriac you can think of uh there being really kind of four maybe five major single authored corpora between the fourth and sixth centuries so these would be earliest uh by a guy named Ephraim, who you mentioned at the beginning. That's who I've kind of cut my teeth on. Um, and then um, a guy named Narsai, who dies uh, right at the beginning of the 6th century. And then two authors, Jacob and Philoxenus. Of those four authors, um, three of them wrote predominantly poetry. So just comparing okay. that to kind of Greek and Latin, the, the kind of the church fathers in Syriac wrote most of what they wrote in poetic form. So it does raise this question of why was that? And I have to say that I, I just don't right now have a good answer <laughs> for that. It's one of the things I think about a lot. I could kind of hazard some half-baked answers, but I don't have a great answer. And part of the reason that it's hard to answer is because um, for as much as Syriac uh, writes poetry as much as Syriac authors produce uh, poetic forms, um, write their theology in poetic forms, they don't theorize about okay. poetry. So there's nothing like uh, Aristotle's poetics uh, in the Syriac world, like Augustine's um, On Christian Doctrine in the De Doctrina in Syriac. So it's, it's kind of and in fact, part of what I was trying to do in my book and part of what I'm trying to do in the book I'm writing now is uh, how can we get at answers to these, these questions um, um, about why poetry through, through the works themselves. So instead of doing an explicit theoretical work, which would be looking at someone writes a book about poetry, a kind of scholarly book and explains to you why poetry gets written, um, since we don't have any works like that, can we take the poems themselves and use those as evidence for why did it seem to be the case that poetry was the genre most favored when it came to doing theology? And I mean, part of it might be institutional, like it might be just the kinds of institutions out of which um, out of which the literature developed, like there does not seem to have been the same kind of school culture 
or rhetorical culture, the, the kind of the institutions of literary training that existed in Greek and Latin cultures. It seems that schools, to the extent that they existed, were more connected to the church and the worshiping community. So in that sense, you can think of poetry as kind of like a, a homiletic genre, like it developed okay. more immediately uh, in connection with uh, catechism than it uh -huh. did in in Greek and Latin, not to say that that it didn't, but you, you know, even like Augustine, who, as you know, uh, thinks of himself as a catechist as much as anything else, he has a certain literary training, which shapes yeah. the way he, he writes. So it's just not clear that the institutions that offered that literary training existed in Syriac, but that still doesn't explain why poetry, not for example, ho not homilies, right? Um, uh, and that's, it's a, it's a interesting question, um, which I hope one day to have a better answer for, <laughs> but right now I, I don't, you know, um, because they didn't, they didn't seem that interested in, in giving us one and kind of, uh, having the critical distance to sort of say like, oh, we're doing theology differently. Um, sorry, I'm kind of droning on here, but I, I will say one, one last thing that I think is, is important on this question of why, and, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard um, this phrase, uh, which is um, was said by Evagrius that the theologian is one who prays and one who prays. Mm, I love that prayer. I love that quote. Yeah. Right. Right. And kind of a similar um, similar idea as the the quote by Prosper of Aquitaine, uh, "Lex orandi, lex credendi." Right. Mm -hmm. Since that, um, whereas we think of often we think of theology as something you do in a secularized classroom, uh, as you well know, this is not the, the East, Eastern Christianity has no particular purchase on this. In the early Christian world, theology is, is much more about something. Um, it's not about kind of um, uh, mastering a body of facts, but it's very much connected to one's life and specifically one's life of, life of prayer. Um, I do think that that sits at the heart of the way Syriac Christians think about theology. So the fact that they would utter their theology in a genre that is not above all seeking uh, clarity, organization, and definitions, not to say that they don't at times uh, prioritize those things, but that's not the be-all and end-all. The, the, the goal of theology is both to echo one's own communion with God and in a sense to sway others to um, to um, engage in that same kind of relationship that from that perspective mm -hmm. it makes sense that that you would write something like poetry as opposed to you know not to set up a straw man here but I'll go ahead and do it not something like the the Summa of Thomas Aquinas where um, the goal of of that, I'm totally speaking in ignorance here, but I'm just going to proceed. The goal of that is to establish uh, a system of theology in a clear as way as, as possible, right? Yeah. I mean, any question you have, I'm going to give you a fairly clear, fairly, um, fairly thorough answer. Um, that's not what early Syriac theology is doing. I probably just butchered Thomas, but. No, I mean, well, I, I'm not uh, that well versed in um, 
Thomistic theology, although I think uh, he didn't quite finish. And at one point he wanted to just destroy it. Um, and and so I think, yeah, so I think there is a little bit in, there might have been some ambivalence in the the totality of his life and, you know, maybe what it was all for, but be that as it may. Um, <laughs> I wanted to trace a couple lines of thought that you brought up there that were just sort of interesting to me. Um well, one would just be um, Carol Harrison, uh, who was on my uh, dissertation committee, wrote a book on Augustine and music. And part of what she deals with in that book is sort is Augustine's ambivalence towards music. On the one hand, he loves it. Um, Ambrose kind of brings music into um, his worship in Milan, and this floors Augustine. You know, he's he's so moved by it. But in the, I wonder if in sort of the way that Augustine was taught, he was almost taught to fear the emotions of right. music. Right. And so like music could generate in him some anxiety because he couldn't control it in the way that he could control his mind. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's a similar sort of, um, yeah. you know, I know the Eastern tradition a little less, um, but, but, you know, Nazianzen writes poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but even that I guess is like sort of secondary some, to some of his orations and his other treatises. Um, uh, but there, there does seem to be a, a, and I was, I was thinking of, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria and his letter to Marcellinus that also has some ambivalence about the music, like be right. careful. Um, we have a rational explanation for this. Um, and is it is there less emphasis on that rationality? And that might lead us into some of the poetry um, itself. But yeah, I don't know. Th- that could be almost like a foil. Like you have people in the in the sort of more um, Western um, and uh, you know and f- West and East, meaning Greek, but Latin right. Greek traditions. Okay. You have more of a self conscious reflection on the method and the um, style uh, where they are worried about it. Is there just right. not that worry? And again, I guess it's hard to answer because you'd be talking from silence, right. but I would just offer that up for a response. But. Right. No, it's actually, um, yeah. So um, let me stretch back to what I said at the very beginning when I said there are no, there are no theoretical treatises on poetry or music. And, you know, you're right to kind of bring in music because of course, in the ancient world, in the late ancient world, poetry is poetry and song. The boundaries between the two are, are porous, right? Uh, right poetry is is musical and most music has words not exclusively but most does um so yeah uh, i said at the beginning that there are no theoretical treatises on poetry or music in syriac and that's true but there are there are um there are narrative sources that we can think of as kind of offering a theoretical reflection on poetry and what i would say those do is they actually do register that same poetry or music, they register that same ambivalence that Augustine, which I'm almost certain he's getting from Plato, um, mm-hmm. or at least from a Platonic tradition, uh, that, yeah. that Augustine, Augustine registers, but they seem much more willing uh, for, that ambi- for the, um, the danger of music to work both ways. So what I mean by that is, um, uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the Syriac life of Ephraim, which is actually okay. written until uh, over a hundred years after he dies, um, and in that, you know, in in Ephraim's actual authentic poetry, he almost never speaks biographically, so he never tells us where he came from, much less why he how he came to write poetry, why he came to write poetry, um, but he does hint 
that there was a pretty significant poet before him, a pretty significant Syriac poet b- before him, which is a guy named Bardison, who you mm-hmm. may, I'm pretty sure we read him when we did yep. the early Christianity seminar. So he was a third century Syriac philosopher, theologian, who, you know, as a lot of, as a lot of early Christian theologians, not a lot, but not uncommon that an early, early Christian theologian will think of themselves as Orthodox in their own day. And then as they kind of get rescued, they're sort of found to be heretical, much to their own surprise after, after they're dead. But Bardison was one of these, um, and he was really kind of um, obsessed with the problem of evil, um, the problem of evil, the problem of fate, why, why some people were born sickly and some people were born healthy, how a good God could create a world where there seemed to be such randomness. These ideas were really, he kind of fixated on them and he developed this, um, this really thorough notion of astrology where he kind of had this idea like there's God, um, but there's also a level on which the stars have um, a lot of control over things like um, why one of us why one of us is born to a poor family and one of us is born to a rich family. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, this did not age well. Um, <laughs> and, um, so Ephraim Ephraim uh, Bardison was kind of even though he had been dead for a while by the time Ephraim was working, Ephraim was obsessed with kind of like putting the final nail in his coffin. But he he alludes to Bardison having actually written 150 psalms, 150 hymns, which he says he did uh, in imitation of David. And of course, Ephraim sees right. the sign of hubris that he was basically trying to usurp the Psalter. And he says in there that the reason Bardison did it, or maybe not even the reason, it's kind of ambiguous if, if he's uh, depicting it causally, but the effect of Bardison writing these psalms was that uh, people heard the sweet melodies and they kind of ingested the heretical teaching through the sweet melodies. That's all Ephraim says. He doesn't connect his whole own hymnody to this, this project. Um, but in the Syriac life of Ephraim, which gets written later, they actually narrative, uh, narratize um, mm. a narrative out of the scene where Ephraim has been, um, you know, living a long life as a monk. He's been primarily writing commentaries on scripture, like good monastic writing. And then at the end of his life, he wanders into the city because as a monk, he's living outside the city alone. He wanders into the city and he hears these songs um, and they are the songs of Bardison, right? And they have these really catchy melodies and um, everybody is singing them, not knowing what they're singing, but they're, they're singing as the, as the life tells it, these woefully heretical ideas. So what Ephraim does, according to this life, is he simply takes Bardison's song. This is like the origins of Christian rock. He takes Bardison's <laughs> songs and puts orthodox words to them. But blatantly, he does it to the same end as Bardison. So the idea is music will get you to subscribe to things that you have not thought out rationally. And uh-huh. it can be, and quite simply, it can be used for good or ill. So uh-huh. on that sense, the Syriac tradition does not problematize the fact, like whereas Augustine is sort of like the fact that certain genres get you to care about things 
that you have not thought through rationally. Uh, the fact that that bothers Augustine, the Syriac tradition just sort of says, oh, that's fine. Let's just use it to a good end. You know, yeah. that makes sense. So there is yeah. totally the same ambiguity, but there's a, a real willingness to uh, to use it and just sort of say, like, let's just uh, let's use it to good. Um, and you also, I mean, kind of connected to this, whereas a lot of the early Christian traditions have a certain ambivalence about um using non-scriptural hymnody in liturgical worship. Um, so you, you may know there, there are fourth century canons, fifth century canons uh, against the writing of uh, one's own liturgical hymnody. Uh, that okay. Eventually the, the tradition sort of says like, oh, it's fine. And people start writing all their own hymns. But there's, there's a sense, especially among like Egyptian monks, that all of liturgical worship should be scripturally based. Um, uh -huh. That kind of anxiety never really has much purchase in the Syriac tradition. The Syriac mm. tradition, from the beginning, seems to be very comfortable with writing its own uh, its own um, liturgical hymnody, not to displace scripture, but standing alongside scripture. Right. Well, I'm going to use your line about the beginnings of Christian rock music. That's going right. to be how I'm going to sell this yeah. podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so in this podcast, I talk with Jeff Wicks, about the patristic <laughs> professor on the origins of Christian rock music. <laughs> well, so have you ever listened to Reliant K or DC Talk? Were you ever into Christian rock music? Um, so I tried. Um, you really want to hear the story. There's a pretty lengthy history here. Uh, so <laughs> sure. Yeah, so in seventh grade, um, uh, I don't know, I won't ask you when you were born. This may have been uh, after your time, or before your time, I mean. But uh, when I was in seventh grade, uh, there was a um, the band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, had the yeah. album Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Um, <laughs> and I had a copy of the CD, and I like kind of listened to it. And my mom, one day, as mothers do, wandered in and like got out the little jacket, which... I think about this a lot as a parent now, like we don't have any way to scrutinize the lyrics of our kids' music. Yep. But, um, you know, the the lyric is just like a really filthy album. And she was so appalled that she uh, she forbade me from listening to any, quote, secular music and took me down to the Bible bookstore and told me I could pick <laughs> out any CD I wanted. She would like pay for it, but I just wasn't allowed to listen to Christian music, uh, to secular music. So I did like I got into some of the more edgier stuff. Um, uh, so I, I thought DC Talk was kind of lame. Reliant Case yeah. at my time. I honestly I've heard the name, but I don't know anything about them. But I did once go to a DC Talk concert, um, and um, and uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. But um, but yeah, I don't know if you know like Tooth and Nail Records. Which was yeah. Um, yeah, so they came around, came along around ninety three, ninety four, and were sort of putting out edgier, edgier music, um, and uh, but would, that would be sold in the Bible bookstore. So I was a big fan of that for a little while, but then my mom kind of stopped paying attention, and I went back to my old Red Hot Chili Peppers. I went back to my old sinning ways. <laughs> that that reminds me of the time I bought a Alanis Morissette album uh, <laughs> that had a swear word in it when I I don't know I was in middle school or something and I'd been at the mall or I don't remember and uh, I actually turned it into my dad I didn't realize that there was like a radio edit and there was a CD version and it had like more swearing in the CD version uh -huh. so I actually brought it to my dad and said I'm really sorry I don't think I should have this. <laughs> 
That's so nice. How old were you? I, I think I was like 11, 12. I don't remember. Wow. You were a good kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, well, like I say, we try to make this podcast, like have some academic elements, have some broader appeal here, but I could go all day on, uh, on Christian music. Yeah, so, so somehow though, the history, of what's that? We can do another, another interview on the history of Christian music. <laughs> yeah. So somehow Jeff Wicks goes from uh, tooth and nail records and DC talk to studying ancient Syriac Christianity. Uh, so what I was said I, I once saw DC talk. Uh, okay. I, don't right. that, I don't want the implication on record that I was a big DC talk fan. I right. Was, oh, sorry. My bad. My bad. But anyway, somehow you, you having enough familiarity with that, uh, like having heard them, but how, how is it that someone goes from like, you know, this kind of like, you know, from the very yeah. American pop culture uh, to studying um, Syriac Christianity. And I, you're, you're not actually a member of the Syriac Orthodox Church, as I understand. Like, so you're not like, that's no. not like your family history or anything, right? No. So I am, I am Greek Orthodox, but I grew up Southern Baptist. So yeah. Oh, welcome to the club. A long way from, from Syriac. Um, no. So um, yeah, just a little, I mean, it's, it's kind of related to my own, um, I guess you would call it spiritual journey. Um, but yeah, so I grew up, I grew up Southern Baptist and for a variety of reasons, um, I became pretty disillusioned with uh, the faith as I knew it um, um, through, through high school, but especially in my, my senior year of high school, I went to a public high school, but they had a course my, the last semester of my senior year um, called Bible is Literature. And um, the course, which was awesome, I mean, in many ways, when I think about like my own life in the academy, like I point to that course, but in many ways, the strategy of that course, Mrs. Hickson was the teacher, was to find all the passages in the Bible that she knew we had never paid close attention to and force us to really contemplate how uh -huh. difficult they were, like, you know, the classic one being Genesis 22, uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, just kind of really get us to sit with, um, you know, just the basic question, like, is this the God that you understand yourself to believe in? And she really, she herself was actually a Christian. She was not trying to destroy anyone's faith, um, but really wanted us to wrestle with um, some of these difficult questions. And uh, the effect it had on me was to uh, just become really, really sort of confused, not confused about my faith, but to, to, it kind of stirred up a lot of questions about my faith that, um, that the, the world in which the Christian world in which I'd grown up, um, for whatever reason, just what I didn't feel like it could answer, you know, and certainly, yeah. Certainly, like my dad at that point started putting um, C.S. Lewis in front of me, and that was that was you know um, really uh, really important. Actually, not like you know most people think of like Mere Christianity or Screw Tape Letters. Those were not the the books that really uh, I think of as having made a difference in my faith. It was more like actually um, Surprised by Joy, where he he recounts his own. Um, his own conversion, as I recall, I haven't read this since this would have been 1997. Um, as I recall, it was not kind of he, he figured out 
the faith um, uh, in this this way that satisfied him intellectually and he could answer every question he had. But it was more of just sort of like he, uh, in an almost like effective way, just admitted that he had to submit to to God, um, to to belief, to faith, and that was actually really helpful to me because it it sort of I I never wanted to leave my faith. I never felt any draw to like atheism. Uh, I actually, and I would say this to this this day, that I always felt that my faith had had given me much more than it had taken from me. You know, right? And I grew up in a, a very conservative home, but it was also a very loving home and a very conservative Christian community, but also one that was very loving and in its way, very open, you know, in a sense like um, that on a person to person level, I felt like people were treated really well with real love and kindness. Um, and um, so I never, I never had any interest in, in um, leaving my faith. Um, but the whole experience that there my senior year of high school of kind of having all these questions, reading enough C.S. Lewis to convince myself that I didn't have to abandon my faith, but not like a real commitment to continuing to sort of figure out my faith. I kind of yeah. left high school in that place and then went into college. And then in college, I just kind of, I didn't uh, abandon my faith, but I abandoned any kind of practice. Like I just, I think as a lot of college kids do, I just kind of went, stopped going to church and, and, um, and um, I, um, over the next actually four years, because I took two years off of college, I went two years and I took two years off, then I went back. Um, over those next four years, two years of college and then two years uh, out of college, um, I, you know, um, like, I just didn't, I didn't think a lot about my faith, but for, for a number of reasons, I kind of reached a point four years in where, where I just, I kind of, needed to figure things out and uh and going back to church was one of the first obvious things where that you know it occurred to me to do to kind of quote get my life together you know um and so um i knew that i knew that for me like the southern baptist church that i come from as much as i i loved it was just it just didn't feel like an option anymore um mm. i felt like i needed something um I mean, I'll say now, I don't know that I would have said it at that time, a little more intellectual, kind of not yep. so strictly evangelical, but like, okay, now that you've been saved, how do you, how do you think through your faith and that sort of thing? Sure. So I kind of, you know, I, I kind of bopped around to some, some churches and quite frankly, I just had this feeling that if I went to a big church where I didn't really know anyone, I just had the sense that I, I knew I wouldn't stay. Like I knew I would not keep going. I would just go back to, to not going to church. And it was really important to me that I actually make going to church a regular part of my life. And I had a couple of friends that had become Orthodox, become Orthodox. And I, I didn't know a lot about it, but I was, I was curious about it. You know, it was the yeah. things they would say were interesting. And so I started going with them to just this very small Orthodox church and I just fell in love with it. You know, I loved the priest. He was just super, uh, he himself had done an MDiv at Duke. So he's like kind of nerdy about theology right. and um, uh, 
pretty charismatic, but, and all the people were, were really nice and really welcoming. And I just loved, I loved the service. You know, I loved, uh, I loved the aesthetic experience of the church. I mean, the, the, the fact that, you know, going in, I grew up, you know, pretty interested in the arts. Both my parents are actually musicians. Uh, so walking into a church space where it was like, oh, like things like art matter. They're not secondary, yeah. you know, they're, uh, they're actually like a key part of the way we, we experience God. Uh, and we're not going to, we're not going to kind of shun that. We're going to actually build it in to the fabric of the way we do worship. So, um, you know, and then, you know, like, I think, I think there's a way that I can think about some aspects of my love for the, the worship in a superficial way. And I think there was certainly a superficial element to it. But, you know, I loved the incense. Like, I loved the vestments. I just, I thought it was super cool. You know, like, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. this was just like so different. And, you know, just to be totally honest, there was a part of it. There was like, it was just different from what I had grown up with. And I, I liked that, you know, I liked kind of, I could be a Christian, but I wasn't that type of Christian, which I'm not in any way endorsing. But in my 21, 22 year old brain, that was certainly part of it. And yeah. so I started going to this church and then that kind of, uh, that kind of, um, uh, initiated my, um, my study of, of theology. It was specifically wanting to be, wanting to know more about the history and the theology of, of this, of this church that was not what I had grown up with. And so I went to a state school. I went to the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. So I switched, they of course didn't have theology. I switched my major to religious studies. Um, there was a, the religious studies department had one historian and he did medieval, but he agreed to, you know, kind of help me negotiate early church. And, um, and then uh, at, at a certain point I was, I was talking to someone about like, as I kind of started to, to think like, maybe I want to do more studies beyond undergraduate. Um, I was talking to someone about like what I would need to do to study early Christianity. And you have so much experience with language that you probably can't relate to this. But I think for a lot of us that come into the study of early Christianity late, there's always that daunting conversation where you realize you've got to learn at least four languages, you know, to, right, right. to do this, you know, Greek, Latin, French, and German. Um, and then this guy I was talking to told me, like, if you really want to do Eastern Christianity and do it right, you don't only need to learn Greek, Latin, French, and German, but you also need to learn Syriac. And I was like, what in the world is Syriac? And so I, I think I just went to Amazon and like <laughs> looked up introduction to Syriac. And there was this grammar by this guy, Wheeler Thaxton. I actually have my tattered copy right here by me. And I, I ordered it and I was just so kind of gung-ho at that time in my life that as a senior in college, I just, well, let me say that when I, when I got the book, um, in the back was a Christomathy, a, a reader, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I went and looked and if you've ever seen Syriac, it's a beautiful script. I should say that to your listeners, like go Google images right. of Syriac, just a beautiful script. And I think looking through those texts and knowing like, there's a way I could learn to make sense of these dots and squiggles. And they would be semantically meaningful to me in the way that reading an English book is semantically meaningful to me. And that was just so 
cool and interesting to me. <laughs> I just kind of dove in and I actually yeah. I went through the grammar on my own and um, out of straight out of undergraduate, I went to an Orthodox seminary for two years um, uh, and there was nobody there that did Syriac. So I would actually just for 15 minutes a day, just study a little bit on my own. And, um, and then from there, I went to the University of Notre Dame where I could finally actually work with someone who knew, who knew Syriac and yeah, the rest is history. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's 15 minutes a day. I have, uh, one of the things that I give when I teach languages is a link to a site for people who want to do Latin. And he talks about Latin in 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's sort of a, what's that? I said, you can do a lot if you're consistent with it. Well, and in a sense, you can do more than if you spend two hours and beat your head against the wall. But if you spend, you know, over the course of a week, 10 minutes a day, you could probably, you know, progress quicker um, than if you try to do too much at once. Yeah, certainly if you do kind of like eight hours a day for a month and then don't look at it for a year, which is what students often do. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's well. the other thing I was thinking about when you described uh, going to the Orthodox Church, I have been teaching Latin at a Catholic seminary and I'd never heard this. uh, But one of the uh, older uh, um, sort of priests in formation, he said that a lot of the evangelical churches basically set up their worship to look like the stage of a Johnny Carson show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I had never heard that. I thought it was Johnny Carson. (laughs) (laughs) So so he used Johnny Carson. I was like, you know, Jimmy Fallon or something. (laughs) (laughs) But it seemed like, I was like, I'd never thought about that, but yeah, you put the band on one side and you got your talking head on the other. And, um, you know, I mean, this, there's really like, it's kind of embarrassing, but that seems to be like, you know, but part of the point that he was making that I've sort of thought about was where it seems like a lot of evangelical worship is intended to mimic the culture directly mm-hmm. um, so that people feel comfortable. But like when you go into an Orthodox church or even an Anglican church, if you were, you mm-hmm. know, used to going to church, um, like at the the building that I grew up in that was built in the seventies and had burgundy and, uh, you know, really like kind of uh I don't know, cheesy. Uh, yeah, the uh, was matched to the burgundy carpet and the white wall. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but you go into an Orthodox church and, you know, you're trained to, you, you feel like you're in a different world. You feel like you're coming into something um, that is meant to be different. It sort of reminds me of going to, well, so again, I'll make another nerdy reference. I love Tolkien as do most uh uh, like evangelicals who um, I admit I've yeah. never read anything but the Hobbit, but oh. I've seen the movies. <laughs> I hate the movies, um, but <laughs> that's a separate story. Uh, but it, anyway, they go to Rivendell Fellowship, and what one of the things that uh, they love about their time, the Hobbits, as they're on their journey, one of the things that they love about their time in Rivendell is they're safe for a little while, mm-hmm. um, and they know they have to go back out into the world. They know that they have a job to do. They know that they have a journey to go on, but at Rivendell, they can t- be at peace because right. it's not the same. Right. Um, yeah. And it, and there's sort of a sense to me when I go into like a more traditional, uh, uh, like historic, some of the historic churches that maintain this this sort of same idea that it's like it's you're coming in here in a world set apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really well put. Yeah, I mean, I also just I liked the you know growing up Southern Baptist as um, I so I should say when I talk about Southern Baptist theology, I haven't been. Um, 
an active part of a Southern Baptist church since 1996, 1997. So this could be totally out of sync with where Southern Baptist church is now. But at the time, I mean, it was all about um, evangelism of a very specific kind, getting people to give their life to the Lord, you know, with the, the basic pitch, the road through Romans. And I just really, and, you know, I mean, even the way it's structured, you can see the way it kind of came of age in like salesman culture of America. You know, they're making the pitch, you know, and I think just walking into an Orthodox church where no, it didn't feel like anybody was trying to sell me anything, you know, and there was even like a sense of like, like when I'm like, sign me up, I want to be Orthodox. The priest was sort of like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> like, you know, past. And like, that was really reassuring, you know, like, yeah. um, we're not like, you know, you would even hear like, like we've been here for, you know, uh, 1500 years, we'll be here for uh, certainly long enough for you to kind of think through this and decide if it if it makes sense. And I think there's some practical wisdom to that just because, you know, um, having been Orthodox now for almost 20 years, like a lot of people do come and go, you know, a lot of people yeah. come and it is so, are kind of so immediately smitten with it. And then, you know, pretty soon you realize like, its problems are not the same problems of the place you came from, but it's got problems. You know, everybody's right. got problems. And in some ways you're, you're trading one set of problems for simply a different set of problems, you know? Sure. Uh, uh, and so some people, once they hit that reality, they're kind of like, what am I doing here? You know? Um, but, but anyway, yeah, I totally, I think, I think that's exactly right. That it is this sense of, I appreciate that it's not trying to uh, be like the world. It's kind of stubborn in its willingness to be irrelevant, so to speak. Right. So to speak. I don't actually think it's irrelevant, but uh, not playing the game of, of relevancy. And I, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I will, I will say, you know, to this day, I still, you know, I still um, am just immensely grateful for that. And it, it kind of keeps me sane. And, and it does feel like life is life is so blisteringly fast in the way it changes uh, to have that weekly connection with something that sometimes frustratingly, sometimes not simply doesn't, it doesn't change, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, it is a thing that it's the right. worship is the same every week. And it, it does become this metaphor for, um, for okay, there are, there are things that transcend uh, the utter, uh, un you know ceaseless change of the world in which I spend most of my life. Like where you know, day to day everything seems to be different. Like there is something other than that. You know. Yeah. Well, I I mean one thing that I would uh, you know the other way that I look at some of these things, and I I, I actually um, am still a regular attender of a Southern Baptist church actually, Ooh, um, but. <laughs> Um, it, it, you know, sometime. what's that? I'll come visit your church sometime. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe we can work that out. I only pointed that out to say, but like one of the things that I, I, I sort of struggle with when I, I work with the worship planning team. And one of the things that like, you know, when I try to incorporate historic elements of the faith, um, you know, that one of the pushbacks I sometimes get is, well, people won't feel comfortable with it. Right. Um, and, and one of the things that I try to explain is like, 
in a sense, they won't feel comfortable with it. But when you have a low barrier to entry, it's really easy to leave as well. And sure. so what I mean is like, yeah. you know, if they, if it's really easy to slip in, it's so easy to slip back out. Yeah. But if it's something that requires more of you, like, okay, I have to learn, I have to be committed. I have to, you know, really think about, is this actually what I want? Well, then you're going to, you know, build a member for life, right. um, not just for the weekend. Right. Um, and, and I know there can be, you know, there can be different perspectives on that, but that's one of the things that I try to explain about like the importance of, um, you know, in a sense, even a, what can feel like a stubbornly and in some ways difficult thing to enter into um that is part of its beauty because it will hold you there um if you can learn to appreciate it yeah i think that's absolutely right um and i could also just say as a shout out to like there are there are baptists who are thinking about this not not necessarily just uh, myself but uh like the center for baptist renewal there's some people that are trying to sort of tie in baptists to the historic um, you know, great tradition, but, uh, I think but yeah, I, be apparently you can even be Baptist and drink beer now, which is, you know, <laughs> that's, that's all I need to know. <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my, yeah, I, well, I, it, yeah, that it, it actually not in every p part of the, so <laughs> that's, that was, you know, that was the joke when I was growing up. How do you know a, a Catholic in the South, they'll say hi to you in the liquor store. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I had some other questions. I was trying to see if I could pull them up. Some other questions about um, uh, Ephraim and well, okay. So one thing, um, I, this is going to like, all right, I'm going to like, we're going to shift gears real fast. You have a minute before you go. Yeah, 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 please. So in some sense, like, so Antioch is Syria. Antioch is the sort of like far, uh, uh, eastern border, well, not the far eastern border, but one of the easternmost parts of um, where Christianity spreads. And it's associated with a kind of quote unquote literal exegesis, which, okay. you know, in some ways, like, so when I read like that, when I read, um, uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, mm -hmm. um, Diodore of Tarsus. When I read some of their biblical exegesis, there's nothing about it that's particularly literary, um, poetic, um, and you know they're trying to get at the historical situation. Now, I think I don't like the the terms, you know, Antioch and Alexandria. I, I studied a little bit with Peter Martin, so I, I know I, that those I, you know those are problems. Yeah, but like, and so how how does Ephraim and how did it? Go ahead. I said, yeah, the, 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 the labels are problematic, but anyone would admit there are different ways of reading the Bible in the early Christian. Yeah. These labels are trying to get at something. We need better labels, but they're, they're getting at something real. Right. Well, and how does like, how does someone like Ephraim fit into that? How do the Syriac like Afrahat or Ephraim <laughs> or, um, you know, some of these other guys, um, how do they fit in with some of that Antioch, Alexandria? I mean, but they're just poetic that in some ways it doesn't even seem like they're in the same conversation. Um, not that yeah. they're not Christian, but they, they just approach scripture in such a different way. Could you, I don't know, th some thoughts on, on how do they fit in some of these dichotomies Yeah, or, you know, not really obviously, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a move as like in general, um, I don't know if this is getting too far afield for your listeners. I apologize if it is. But in general, as you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a move in European theology to kind of reclaim patristic exegesis, um, both just to kind of write the narrative of it, but also to 
uh, see if it could provide resources for what felt like kind of some dead ends of uh, historical critical um, reception of the Bible. Um, and, you know, so this is when uh, De Lubac, Danielu are writing their kind of magisterial histories of early Christian medieval exegesis. And in kind of in response to those studies, there was a there was a period where people people scholars asked this question of Ephraim particularly, um, how does he fit with the kind of Alexandria uh, Antioch paradigm? And, and in this paradigm, Alexandria is kind of allegorical exegesis. Antioch is literal exegesis. And, you know, the, the general conclusion was like, he just doesn't really fit in the paradigm very well, um, with perhaps one exception, which is, uh, so he, he, you know, according to his hagiography, whether it's true or not, he wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible. I think it's probably mm -hmm. not true. But um, of all those, we only have three that are extant, a commentary on Genesis, a commentary on Exodus, and a commentary on what's called the Dia Tesseron, uh, which uh -huh. is um, what it's the basically in the uh, second, third centuries in Syria, they did not use, and continuing the fourth century, they did not use the four gospels that uh, that we use today and that were used at the time in Greek and Latin, but they used a single combined gospel, um, which was called the Dia Tesserum, you know, according to the four versions. Um, and this was when Ephraim lived the, so to speak, canonical gospel of the Syriac church. We know that because he wrote a commentary on it. Um, so those are the only biblical commentaries he has. But in his commentaries on Genesis and Exodus, he actually looks like uh, someone like Theodore of Mopsuestia, very literal. Uh, when he reads Genesis, there are places where you would just assume he's going to kind of go wild with finding Christological types, and he doesn't. His commentary on Genesis is basically just a re-narration um, an explanatory narration of the Genesis text. Um, but in his poetry, in his hymnody, um, that is not the way he reads the Bible at all. He doesn't, he also, that said, doesn't read it like somebody like, like Origen. He has similar concepts to Origen. Like he will talk about the uh, literal sense of scripture and the spiritual sense of scripture. He has an idea of kind of two levels of scripture. He doesn't talk about that frequently. He, I think he makes one allusion to it. Um, and he has this general sense that what scripture represents is not any kind of uh, literal depiction of the, the life of God, but a compassionate, um, I use this word, which has a very different resonance in contemporary English, but you'll know what I mean, um, a compassionate condescension on mm -hmm. God's part, that God has kind of recognized, God recognizes that recognizes that if he presented himself to us as he is, we would sort of like have no way to understand it. So he presents himself essentially metaphorically uh, so that we can understand it. We're kind of getting, mm -hmm. like it, you can think of it as like a parable, like the parables Jesus tells. Uh, it's like a story uh, so that we can get some grasp of what the truth of God is. And that's kind of how he thinks of the Bible, is it is it is on some level a parable for the life of God. Now, in a contemporary context, 
that's immediately going to raise questions of like, oh, are you saying that, you know, the Israelites didn't really cross the Red Sea or like, what does that do with history? And we can kind of think about that, but that's not really Ephraim's concern. Ephraim's not engaged in 20th century debates over whether the Bible is historical or not historical. The point for him is that the Bible represents um, a kind of parabolic representation of the life of God. Um, how that kind of manifests itself literarily is it means you can you can play with the Bible. You can kind of connect things that we would never, we being kind of contemporary common sense Americans, would never connect. Like you can, if you're reflecting on um, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, you can do a complete search of the entire Bible. And remember that Ephraim's doing this search in his mind because he probably has huge chunks of it memorized for every reference to water and use those to, in a sense, unpack the meaning of Jesus baptism in the Jordan. So there's a real kind of, there's not a kind of sense of chronological development of scripture. There's a the sense that everything gets temporally collapsed around whatever he is, whatever it is that he's talking about. If he's talking about the crucifixion, he's going to do a complete search for every allusion to wood throughout the Bible and mm-hmm. can use that as a way to unpack the meaning of the crucifixion. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, not, it's not literal. It's not literal, but it is very connected to the words of the text, right? Um, it is very immersed in the details of the text, but um, the whole text is kind of, the whole Bible is sort of, sort of fair game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that kind of gets it no. you're looking for. Yeah, that was that's really helpful. I mean, you know, it, it's funny too. Like, and this is why I understand the frustration with those terms, uh, literal and allegorical, because you know you can read Origin doing the exact same thing, right. um, and for whatever reason, the one that's coming to me is Katabinane to go down. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. and so the same idea. Yep. Yeah. So it's just like anytime he basically has the Bible memorized and he can go through yeah. and say, okay, going down, going down, going down. Um, <laughs> right. right. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's pretty incredible. So, but he's supposed to be the one that's allegorical, but if there's someone who knows the letter of the text better, which, you know, literal letter, um, and you know, if there's someone who knows that letter better, I would be surprised. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You may think that the way Origen or Ephraim, you may think the way they're reading scripture is totally crazy, but you can't say they're not serious about the Bible. You cannot say it. Uh, They sort of put all of us to shame with their, their knowledge of the Bible. Yeah. Well, and one of the things, I mean, to go back to some of the, like, you know, to tie in just my own sort of personal reflections on even our conversation today. But like when I thought about the frustrations I had growing up in a Southern Baptist evangelical context Mm -hmm. was it felt like the Bible, like I knew that there was interpretation going on, Mm -hmm. but the Southern Baptist didn't like to talk about what that looked like um, and and what those principles were. Um, And I did this program when I was in seminary where I went with uh, uh, some Jewish uh, rabbinical students Mm -hmm. uh, to the Holy Land. And we would talk about how they understood Genesis or how they understood, you know, elements of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And um, and and they would they knew their Talmud, they knew right. their scaffolding, they knew the interpretive tradition. Right. And I was like, 
I know we have one of these in right. Christianity. I just don't I know it very well. Ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, you know, so like one of the reasons that I love, you know, that I wanted to come to SLU and, and keep doing this kind of stuff was like, okay, we need to like rebuild and be self-conscious about what our edifices are for interpretation. Right. Um, and because I know they're there, you know, and, you know, I have, I mean, I guess I could say I have some of my questions about Perry Archon and on the first principles from origin. I, maybe I don't agree a hundred percent with how he lays down his interpretation, but he knew that he was doing an interpretation right. um, and, and there's a consistency to it. Yeah. Even that process of recognizing if you read a patristic exegete and you sort of say like, I don't buy this even that process of having to explain why forces you to articulate what you do by, what it is that matters to you about exegesis, uh, rather than just, well, he's not saying what the Bible says, and I am. You know, it forces you to be um, articulate and conscious of um, what, what you're doing when you read the Bible, right? Because uh, you're not just simply... Uh, unpacking it the only way it the only way it can be unpacked right right um yeah you're ma you're making choices you're kind of pushing things to the side you're emphasizing certain things de-emphasizing certain things even if it's you know you're reading the new testament through the lens of romans whatever it may be you know you're reading the old testament through the lens of the new testament whatever it may be you're making making choices and yeah we could all stand to be uh uh, clear and humble about those choices we're making. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Um, as I said at the end of my extremely long intro, uh, please do engage with us on Twitter and Facebook. You'll see some giveaways uh, for some books from InterVarsity Press from some authors that we'll be interviewing here in the coming weeks. So be looking out for those. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks.